September 19, 1961. Betty and Barney Hill drive home from vacation in Niagara Falls. After five hours on the road at 10.30 p.m., they experience what has become history's most well-known alien abduction experience. What happened that night? Did the Hills imagine the encounter, or was it something truly out of this world? Let's find out in this week's episode, The Hill Abduction. It's the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent Anderson and Agent ETA. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. Follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. The Mind Boggle of the Week. Dogs. A tribute to the Hills dog, Delcy. There are a lot of people who may take dogs for granted. They may look at dogs as just a pet. But remember, whether it be a breed that we may have used to hunt for food or protect livestock and crops... Throughout a good portion of human history, dogs have been there by our sides to protect, serve, and love. They have become part of the family unit and part of our history. If it wasn't for dogs, we may have never been able to make it out of the hunter-gatherer stage of our evolution. This week we're talking about the abduction of Barney and Betty Hill. This is one of the most famous cases ever in UFO. There's only a couple of cases that are more well-known. Mm-hmm. And as far as alien, alien abductions go, this is the big one. Mm-hmm. So the events happened on September 19th, 1961 at 10.30 p.m. The Hills were driving home to Portsmouth from a vacation in Niagara Falls on U.S. Route 3. When they got south of Lancaster and New Hampshire, Betty saw a bright point of light in the sky that moved from below the moon upwards towards the west of the moon. At first, she thought it was a shooting star, but then the light started to move erratically and it got bigger and brighter. So they stopped the car at a picnic area south of Twin Mountain. Betty looked through her binoculars and saw an odd-shaped craft flashing multicolored lights moving across the moon. Okay, so Barney looked with the binoculars and at first he thought it might may have been a commercial airliner. Um, the craft without looking like it turned, rapidly descended in his direction. He realized it was not an airliner at that moment. They got back into the car and drove on the narrow mountain roads. While driving, they went slowly and observed the craft as it came closer to them. While they were watching it and driving, it passed over a restaurant and a signal tower on top of Cannon Mountain. It came out near the old man of the mountain, which the old man of a mountain is a feature on the mountain that it looks like the silhouette of a man's Mm -hmm. face. Unfortunately, it's not there anymore. It's collapsed. So she said that it was one and a half times the length of the profile of the old man in the mountain on the cliff. And that's about 40 feet long. And she also said that it was rotating. When they got one mile south of Indian Head, the object descended toward their vehicle Barney stopped in the middle of the highway to watch the object. It hovered 100 feet above the car, which was, they were driving a 1957 Chevy Bel Air. A beautiful car. And it filled the entire, yeah, oh man. Google that right now. Stop listening to this stuff. Go Google 1957 Chevy Bel Air and 
yeah, if I ever get the chance, I'm definitely buying one, which I a definitely want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'll never have the chance. Yeah. <laughs> so they they said it filled the entire field of view in the windshield, and Barney said it reminded him a little bit of a pancake. Mm-hmm. So at that point, uh, Barney got out of the car and he had his pistol at that time as well. And he stepped closer to the vehicle and using the binoculars, he saw what he claimed was eight to 11 humanoid figures and they were peering out of the craft's windows. And to him, he say, he claims that they did not look human. So one of the creatures supposedly communicated with Barney like telepathically. And he says that the 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 creature was basically communicating him to stay where he was and keep looking. So they wanted him to stay in that one spot and not move. So what appeared to be bat wing fins with red lights telescoped out of the sides of the craft and a long structure descended from the bottom of the craft is what they claim. The craft was silent. It moved closer. And at that point it was 50 50 feet high and 300 feet away. So Barney ran back to the car in a hysterical state they claim uh, he says to Betty, they are going to capture us. The Every time I, I hear, hear that description, he talks about the bat wing fins. Mm-hmm. I just think of Batman, like, you know, like Batman's car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of seems like it, it seems like a very period of appropriate description, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. It, by by Batman car, I don't mean like the modern, you know, big giant tankish ones. I mean, like the the OG Adam West Batman oh, car. Oh yeah, Adam West <laughs> is the best. So the object moved directly over the car. He drove away at high speed, and he told Betty to look for the object. She rolled down the window and stuck her head out of the car and looked up. At this time, they heard a rhythmic series of beeping or buzzing sounds, and it seemed to be coming or bouncing off the trunk of the car. The car started to vibrate and they felt a tingling sensation passing through their bodies. They experienced at this time an altered state of consciousness that left them dulled, their mi- left their minds dulled. Mm-hmm. A second series of beeping or buzzing sounds returned them to full consciousness. And so afterwards, when they regained full consciousness, they were 35 miles away, but they didn't remember how they got there. So when they got home, supposedly it was at dawn. And they had odd, odd sensations and impulses that they claim that they were experiencing after they got, had gotten home. For example, when uh, they got home, Betty insisted that the luggage that they had with them, that they had brought home, be kept near the back door and not be within anywhere close to the middle of the house or near their bedroom. Uh, all, one other thing that is kind of a, an odd point of a reference, I guess, is their watches from then on were permanently broken. So supposedly after that experience, their watches that they were wearing never worked again. And that's a really strange detail to me because what would cause their, I wasn't able to find the information, mm-hmm. but I'm curious, was it, what was the model of watch? Because mm-hmm. I don't think they had digital watches back then. So it had to be a mechanical no. watch. Yeah. And what I, would have, I looked for that caused, as well. And I couldn't yeah. find any information on that. Sometimes with these cases, these small details can reveal quite Mm -hmm. a lot. So another thing that was weird, Barney found that the leather strap on his binoculars was torn and broken, but he didn't remember that happening. Mm -hmm. And his dress shoes were scraped on top of the shoes as if somebody had been dragging him, you know, if if he was unconscious and dragging him and his shoes were on the dragging on the ground. 
Mm-hmm. They both, uh, when they they started talking about the incident when they got home, and they both drew pictures of what they had seen. Mm-hmm. Trying to describe or trying to work out exactly what had happened to them. So they tried to piece together what had happened, but found their memories were very fragmented, especially after the buzzing sounds, because that's one of the things that they remembered, both of them in particular. So Betty placed the shoes and the dress that she was wearing in the closet, and the dress was torn at the, the hem zipper and lining. And when she later retrieved the dress, it had supposedly a pink powder on it. So Betty took it outside and hung it on the clothesline, and the powder had blown away afterwards. So the dress was damaged, though, and she decided at that point to throw it away because of the damage, but shortly after changed her mind because, you know, it's going to be evidence, and there's, you know, very little of that besides their memories that, that they had. So she retrieved it, and um, there's actually pictures available online of the dress, and it's one of the, it's pretty much the only physical piece of evidence that's still around even to this day, and you can go online and actually look at pictures of it, and, and you can see where some of the evidence is, is like some of the discoloration and stuff like that. You can see it on the dress in those, in those pictures. There was one other physical piece of physical evidence. And Mm -hmm. that's that the car's trunk had shiny concentric circles on it that Mm -hmm. weren't there before. And I I was, I, I'm not too up to speed on all this geometry, you know, the definitions and stuff. So I had to actually look this one up because I've, I, you know, I've heard that term, but I forgot what it meant. So mm-hmm. concentric circles means a series of circles inside each other. So you have a big circle, then another one inside that, another one in that, another one in that. And it, it's something you see. Now, is this something that is found in like uh, crop circles? I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, a, that's just a coincidence. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just referencing, I'm res- yeah, I'm referencing that because that's that's something that a lot of people are, are going to be able to draw a picture of crop circles or those type of designs because uh, they've seen it a lot throughout, you know, yeah. their life. Yeah, it's it's a pretty distinctive design that shows up a lot in, you know, like logos or whatever. It's just one circle inside of another, and, mm-hmm. you know. And that's, that's a really interesting detail. I was unfortunately not able to find any photographs of the car or I wasn't able to find out what happened to the car. Is it still around? Does somebody own it? Is it in a garage somewhere? I don't know. Because mm-hmm. if you could see pictures of the concentric circles, was, that's that's a really interesting detail. Was was that something physically connected to the car? Mm-hmm. Or was it like a result of some sort of beam that hit the car? What What exactly is that? But if you had the physical evidence of the car that could be investigated that might be able to reveal quite a lot about the case. But unfortunately I couldn't find Mm -hmm. anything on it. Like there's very little about, about the car that I was able to find, but they did take Mm -hmm. a compass. Uh, Somebody suggested to them that they take a compass and put it near the concentric circles on their car. And when they got close to the circles, the compass needle whirled rapidly around and spun around and when they pulled away, it would stop spinning. So that suggests that the properties of the car were somehow messed with this, you know, magnetic, they were magnetized somehow mm-hmm. on, on the car, which suggests some sort of strong force had interacted with the car. What that force might be is anybody's guess. Yeah, that's definitely out of the ordinary. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. On the 21st of September, Betty called Peace Air Force Base And the next day, Major Henderson called her back for an interview. 
Based on this interview, he submitted a report on the 26th, and the conclusion of the report was that they had misidentified the planet Jupiter. And if, <laughs> he, if, if not everybody's familiar, but if you look outside, Venus and Jupiter are the two brightest planets. They're super bright. You can look at Jupiter with binoculars. It looks pretty cool if they're good binoculars. And it's really bright, mm. and it looks like a star, but it's, you know, it's a planet. It reflects a lot of light. So <laughs> being that that's a pretty ridiculous explanation for the events, the report was eventually changed to optical condition, inversion, and insufficient data before it was submitted to Project Blue Book. That sounds pretty reasonable to me. Straightforward, you know. Yeah, and well, it's one probably thing, the conclusion that I would have came up with. One thing that also that I, I don't think most people know is that Jupiter actually does abduct a lot of people. It happens all the time. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> there's, a, there's a very long history of this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Venus, uh, Venus abducts more people than Jupiter, but Jupiter does abduct a few people here and there. Betty contacted Donald E. Kehoe. Uh, he, he was a former military aviator, and he was the head of NICAPT, which is actually the uh, National Investigation Committee on Aerial Phenomenon. And she said that they were considering hypnosis to help them remember because there's obviously holes in, in the series of, of events that they were remembering and, and they wanted to remember remember more. So uh, one person that's in, uh, very important to mention also is Walter N. Webb. And he was a, an astronomer, astron, astronomer <laughs> and also a, a NICAP member as well, which I prefer to actually call it NICAP. And I will uh, call it kneecap from here on out. So at any rate, well, kneecap just um, sounds better met, if you, if you're being honest. Uh, flows better as well, right? Yeah. So uh, they uh, he met with uh, the Hills on October 21st of 1961, and they had a six-hour interview, and they told him their story and everything that they could remember up until up until that point. Ten days after this hap after the whole event happened, Betty had vivid dreams, and this went on every night for five nights. And after that, it stopped entirely. She started to write down some of these dreams. In one of them, she and Barney were in front of a roadblock with men surrounding their car. She lost consciousness, and when she regained it, she was being forced by two small men to walk into the forest at nighttime. Barney was walking behind her. She called to him, but he was in a trance or dazed, and he didn't respond she describes these men as being about five foot, five inches tall, wearing blue uniforms and hats that look kind of like military hats. They had black hair, dark eyes, and bluish lips with gray skin. And she was sure that they were not human. They definitely weren't human looking. The hills, when they walked up the ramp that they described as, as coming out of the bottom of this uh, vehicle, they noticed that the disc-shaped craft was metallic in appearance. So inside, uh, they were separated and they went their, their separate ways to be examined. So Betty was examined by one of the men who was calm and she claims he spoke difficult to understand English. Um, he seated her on a chair and a bright light was shown upon her. She says the man cut off a lock of uh, her own hair and um, he also uh, examined her eyes, her ears, mouth, teeth, throat, and hands. He also saved trimmings from her fingernails. 
She also claims that he examined her legs, feet, and the man used what she says was a dull knife that uh, resembled a letter opener. And he used this dull knife to scrape uh, some of her skin onto what she says resembled cellophane. After this, he tested her nervous system and he thrust a needle into her navel, which caused her agonizing pain. The leader waved his hand in front of her eyes and the pain vanished. The examiner left the room and Betty engaged in conversation with the leader, or at least the, one of the aliens that she perceived to be the leader. She picked up a book with rows of strange symbols on it, and he told her that she could take it home. She also asked him where he came from, and he showed her a map with stars and planets on it. After they were done experimenting on the couple, the strange men escorted the hills from the ship and had a disagreement when they were doing this. The leader told Betty that she couldn't keep the book, that they actually didn't want them to remember anything about the encounter at all. Betty insisted that no matter what they did, she would remember what happened. Her and She and Barney were taken to their car, and the leader suggested that they watch the craft depart. They did this, and then they kept driving. So on November 25th, 1961, the Hills were interviewed once again by a couple of NICAP members, C.D. Jackson and Robert E. Homan. During this interview, they noticed that the Hills took a lot longer to drive home than they should have based on the route. So the this is one of the classic cases of missing time. Mm-hmm. And the the Hills did actually didn't come up with this. So the, the point here is that the people interviewing them noticed this discrepancy. The Hills didn't notice this at first. They didn't say yeah. the drive took longer than it should have. It was the people interviewing them that said, hey, this drive took longer than it should have. Why is that? Mm-hmm. But the Hills had no idea why it took longer. The fact that they had missing time was a catalyst upon why they they decided to go get hypnosis done upon themselves. So they they had to explain that missing time somehow. So they figured once they heard about hypnosis and understood a little bit more about what what hypnosis was about, they decided to go ahead and, and, and get that performed. So basically, the sessions were conducted by a Boston psychiatrist and a neurologist named Benjamin Simon. And the reason why they went to this fella is because Barney originally went to his own uh, personal psychiatrist, and his uh, name was Mr. Stevens. And Mr. Stevens was the one that actually recommended Benjamin Simon to him. So the first time the Hills actually met Simon was on December 14th of 1963. And they talked about you know, the possibilities of what they may be able to discover through the uh, process of hypnosis. So the series of hypnosis sessions were held from January 4th, 1964 to June 6th, 1964. And obviously it was conducted in a series of sessions. It wasn't uh, one sitting, all conducted at one time. During these sessions, Simon conducted the interviews with Betty and Barney separate. So he did this on purpose so they could not overhear each other's account of uh, the events and be influenced by by those accounts. So Barney was put under hypnosis first, and uh, the account that he gave was pretty much straightforward, at least compared to Betty's account, because she she elaborated on on much more than he did. And one of the reasons uh, conceivably why he did this is because, as he claimed, he kept his eyes closed during a good portion of this event. 
Um, so just like Betty, Barney actually stated that he and Betty were taken onto the disc-shaped object where they were separated, as we had previously stated. So Betty went, uh, underwent hypnosis afterwards and gave a lot more detail. You know what I mean? Um, she, she went into great detail about the conversations that we have already mentioned. And um, the Hills didn't actually seek publicity for all these events. You know, they were just trying to seemingly, it seems like they, they just were trying to understand what had happened to them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't actually until October of 1965 when a front page story about their experience was published in the Boston traveler. And that's when they started to get some attention. So the day after that is when the story was picked up by the United press international and, and in the title, as you would assume, it's a, a, a paper that is, is published internationally. So that's when they received international attention. So afterwards, uh, John G. Fuller had obviously caught wind of the story and he contacted the Hills and between both of the, the three of them, they had uh, collaborated on a book that was called The Interrupted Journey, or I'm sorry, is called interrupted journey and so that was a pretty popular book it, it sold quite a bit of copies and that's a a big jump off point to where the story becomes much more popular for your average person that's where a lot of people hear of the story so unfortunately barney died of a, a cerebral hemorrhage in 1969 at the age of 46 so he died actually relatively pretty young it's kind of odd the way he died but at any rate, Betty died of cancer in 2004 at the age of 85. And as a matter of fact, she never remarried after Barney's death. Yeah. And that's pretty, that's pretty much the, the whole story in a very condensed form of the, the Hill abduction. Mm -hmm. Now there's, there's a lot yeah. of rabbit holes you can go down with this one. Yeah. Well, and there's also, there's a loss. There's also a lot of little facts in between what we've mentioned um, that, that people will, and like in other episodes, there, there's stuff that we're going to mention. We're, we're not going to go into crazy detail because we only have so much time. But as people are going to look into this, they're going to find a lot more about what, what Barney and Betty said. There's a lot more detail. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was the short, short version. But there's still a couple of things that are interesting to talk about. One of them is the star map that Betty drew. It turns out that in 1968... Oh, yeah. Marjorie Fish, an elementary school teacher and amateur astronomer, read the book Interrupted Journey about their experience. And she saw a picture of this star map in there and being an amateur astronomer became really interested in this because if it was a legitimate experience and if this star map was accurate, well, that that's pretty compelling evidence and it shows where these aliens came mm -hmm. from. So she made the basic assumption that one of the stars on the star map must be our own sun. It must be our star because otherwise if it was, if it was just a random assortment of stars, it wouldn't really make a whole lot of sense. But if it was a star map, then it would have to have our star in it. Otherwise there wouldn't be no point in showing it to Betty. So what she did was she made 3d models because you know, this is back in the day when before you had advanced modeling software at least that was available to an elementary school teacher. So she made 3D physical models of different different star systems in our area. And she studied these different models 
from thousands and thousands of different vantage points and perspectives. And after many years, or after several years, she found that the only match was a viewpoint from the Zeta Reticuli dual star system. Some people try really hard to disprove this, but others, such as David Saunders, who is a statistician, argues that it's statistically improbable to get a match, a pattern match, where one of the stars is our sun and you're only looking at the local stars. The numbers, the numbers just don't add up for it to be a coincidence, basically. Um, mm. More recently, some people have used computers to also match this star system. Uh, for example, one, one of many examples is on a, there's a forum that I go to, I read called the above top secret forums. They have, you know, various stuff mm-hmm. on there. I'm sure people listening to the show are familiar with it. And a user yeah. on there named James 1947 posted a, a really detailed explanation of some software that he wrote to use the star map as a template and match it to different patterns of stars from different perspectives and he went out, I think he said he went out to like 33 parsecs away or something like that. And with a computer, it didn't take him years to do this. He was able to do it like in an afternoon because the a computer can compare these patterns very quickly compared to how mm-hmm. a person could do it, you know, building a 3D model by hand. Yeah. So his conclusion was also that Zeta, the Zeta Reticuli star system was a match to the star map that she drew. And just first, just for a second, if that's true, the reason why this is so compelling is because the, there's a couple of things about it that are compelling, but first of all, um, there was, there's a couple of stars on her map that we didn't even know about at that time. So if you want to say that it was all a hoax or whatever, well, how did she know about those stars? Because astronomers didn't even know those stars existed. They could they couldn't detect them at that time, or they hadn't detected them. Uh, and also, yeah, this would be quite the, quite the coincidence. Yeah, and also the star map is drawn from the perspective of the Zeta Reticuli star system. It's not drawn from the perspective of our sun. So, in other words. If she drew this map, you just look up, I can draw Orion, I can draw the Big Dipper, whatever. But an average person who's not an astronomer and does not have access or knowledge of, you know, three-dimensional star systems would not be able to draw a star system, would not be able to draw a star system from the perspective of another star. That's a Mm. pretty interesting thing to, to do, right? So... If it's just a coincidence, that's one thing. But what what I'm talking about, what these people are proving, is that mathematically, it's very unlikely. And what what this user James 1947 did was run all this these simulations to basically find the patterns, and was only able to find one pattern that matched the star map, and that's the pattern mm-hmm. from the Zeta Reticuli star system. And it's not necessarily hard proof. But for me, it does offer an incredible amount of credibility to the case, yeah. even though it's at the same time something that's easy to dismiss. It's also a pretty important piece of information. Well, I mean, easy easy to dismiss if you don't understand uh, the mathematical process that he's using. Yeah. Right? And if you kind of just because some some people are willing to just kind of brush that that kind of stuff off to the side and just really not pay attention to it. 
and just move forward. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the, the, if you go into the, um, the ATS forums has a lot of different sub forums. One of them being one of the sub forums being aliens. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you go in there, this is actually a pretty popular mm-hmm. thread that's usually towards the top. So it's pretty easy to find. And you can read mm-hmm. all the different discussions about it. I got to admit a lot of what they're talking about um, gets into like nuts and bolts programming stuff and some math stuff. And I didn't really comprehend all of it, but I, I was able to comprehend enough of it to see what they're talking about. One of the fun things about the thread too, yeah. is just seeing how the pseudo skeptics try to debunk this stuff. And it's, they're so desperate to, to not believe that this stuff is true that they use just really absurd things. Like one person used software to analyze a pattern that he drew himself and claimed to get like a 98% match. But when the guy who started the thread pointed out that he wasn't matching patterns, he was just matching the color of the pixels on the image. But the person, the Mm pseudo skeptic trying to debunk this stuff didn't really understand that that's what he was talking about. And he just went just full speed ahead still trying to say, no, 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 I matched this pattern when that's not what he was doing at all. It's, it's kind of actually a fun read because he keeps insisting over and over again that he's debunked something when in fact, he's just making himself look foolish, but that that's sort of, mm-hmm. that's sort of a fun diversion in the thread, but it's a really interesting read. Um, I highly suggest people go and look into it. It's for me, this is one of the most compelling parts of this story is the star map. Oh yeah, it's a very important piece of uh, evidence as well, as far as her statement goes. And, and there's other types of evidence, as we've already stated. Like like yeah. we said, the the dress that Betty actually wore that night. Um, so what what she claims is she only wore the dress once before the encounter, and um, the the dress has been analyzed many times over over the years after the event, and the real, the results have not shown that anything anomalous, you know. For example, like uh, some kind of like weird DNA or cellular structure that we can't identify, something on the dress that we've never seen before. You know, it's, it, yeah, it's not something that they they came across. That's what they tested it a lot of times, and they were really excited to find alien DNA because the aliens were touching her without gloves on. But unfortunately, they mm-hmm. didn't find that. Yeah, and that was one of the hopes that they had going into it. Yeah, but so. However, the the damage that was on the dress was consistent with with uh, the des- descriptions that she made of the events. Um, like we had mentioned before, the the discolorations um, were most prevalent where she said that the aliens had been handling her or holding her while she was being led to where to the uh, the the spacecraft or from the spacecraft after the after they were done. So the test rule uh, the tests ruled out the possibility of um, the discolorations being made by something like sweat or some type of similar bodily fluid. So they weren't quite sure how the discolor, the discolorization was made, but they knew it wasn't because of bodily fluids. Basically for me, the dress is one of the coolest things about this case because hardly any cases have actual physical evidence, but this dress is still out there. Mm-hmm. Somebody, I, f- I forget who has it, but mm-hmm. it still exists there's plenty of pictures of it. Like you could go out yeah. and find this dress. It It's a real thing. And whether or not the case is, mm. you know, it could be a complete fabrication, whatever it is about the case, we have a real piece of evidence with the case and it supports the witness statements. 
I feel like I have to address what the skeptics say, even though I don't really put a whole lot of stock into it, but a lot of people mm-hmm. do. A lot of people do pay attention to the skeptics. So I feel I feel the need to at least address it. And pretty much every time when you break it down and really pay attention to what the skeptics are saying, it becomes so ridiculous that it's pretty much it's more realistic in most of these cases to say that it was aliens or interdimensional, whatever the skeptics are so ridiculous Mm -hmm. that I'm starting to think that they want us to think it was aliens. So one of the foremost skeptical explanations for this case is that the, so Betty and Barney were an interracial couple. She was white. He was black. And in the sixties, that was a very uncommon thing. And undoubtedly they would have had to deal with a lot of racism and just a lot of, a lot of BS for being an interracial couple. And that would have been very stressful Mm -hmm. for them. So one of the foremost explanations is that because they were an interracial couple and this was a very stressful thing for them, dot, dot, dot aliens. I'm not making this up. That's, (laughs) that's 100% the explanation that is rolled out and dusted off a lot of times to dismiss this case is because they they were stressed out for it. it does, I don't know. Does that make any sense to you? Agent ETA? <laughs> uh, not in the least, but at, at any rate, I mean, I understand what they're trying to describe because the, the, the time in which they were a couple because of uh, how somewhat unusual it was in society at that time that created a, a, a very stressful situation. And somehow that stress was um, converted into an alien, an alien abduction story that they, they, they somehow came up with because of that stress or that they. Um, but for me, it's just such an absurd explanation because why not just say, I don't believe what these people are saying. I think that they're full of it. They're making up their story. Mm. Just say they're making the story up. Why do you got to come up with these completely ridiculous explanations? Like a lot of people, a lot of people have stress. Pretty much everybody has stress in their life, but somehow if your stress is due to being an interracial couple, that can make you see aliens. But everybody else, if you're not an interracial couple and you're stressed, you don't see aliens. It's just, it's just, yeah. And, And obviously that's, that's, that's not only quite a stretch to make. I actually kind of look at that as, as a bit of a lazy explanation as well. Completely you lazy. really want to think about, about the possibilities of, of, of what this story means or look into the actual credibility of the story. You just came up with your own lazy way of just writing it off as, ah, it was this, that, or that, you know? Right. It's just, it's weird. I mean, and there's, there's, there's a lot of false information as well that, that has been uh, accredited to this story. I mean, for instance, uh, there's a lot of ad hominem stuff that has been um, said about Betty. For instance, people claim that Betty is mentally unstable, and um, they they also claim that Barney did anything that Betty told him to, and and Barney was a very submissive partner, as it were. Um, you know what I mean? So there's false statements about their trip. Also, for instance, Barney went to Niagara Falls because he was super stressed. And uh, needed, you know, the time away or what have you. But in reality, Betty had a week off of work and it, it was just a normal vacation that, that any person may have gone and gone on. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's, there's some more false statements too. For example, 
that they had been driving for 16 hours straight and were totally exhausted and basically hallucinated the event. But in fact, they had only been driving for five and a half hours before the sighting, which a five and a half hour drive is not fun, but it's not that bad. You're not going to be hallucinating from exhaustion. Uh, Another false. No. Yeah. Yeah. Another false uh, statement about the sighting was usually the, the pseudo skeptics will say that it was following them, but it was, it was a star kind of like a false perspective. Like, so basically the way that works is you're moving and the terrain around you is moving. So if you look at a star in the distance, that also appears like it's moving, like it's following you, but it's not a fixed, it's a fixed point of light. And that's what they say Mm -hmm. happened here. But if you pay attention to the witness statements, that's not what they said at all. They said that it moved erratically, it got bigger, it came down, it looked like a big giant 50-foot pancake or whatever it was. They didn't just say that it was a point of light Mm -hmm. the whole time and then abduction, you know, so it's just completely made up. Uh, They also say that Barney was afraid of the sighting, so he took a detour through some like back dirt roads and Mm -hmm. that took a a lot longer for them to get home and that's why they have two hours that are missing. So in other words... Nothing weird happened at all. They just took a detour on dirt roads and ended up home two hours later than they expected. And that somehow explains the whole sighting. Um, And another one, uh, another little piece of information that it's not quite as damning as the other ones, but sometimes when you find these little inconsistencies in what the pseudo-skeptics say, it's it pretty much demonstrates that they're, they're kind of just making stuff up and they're not, a lot of these people come across as being really reliable and they rely on data and they're so serious and believable. And the, you know, they paint all these, these people as you know, like the Hills or anybody who sees a UFO is basically a whack job or whatever. Um, so one, one debunker says that, yeah. Well, I was going to say, you know, character assassination is, is usually the first step yeah. in, in, in labeling anything as, as something you shouldn't be listening to or paying attention to. Right. And that's you know, discrediting something. That's what they do to debunk this stuff is they, they, they use first of these, um, ad hominem, which is, that's a, you know, logical fallacy is basically attack against the character mm-hmm. combined with. Another logical fallacy, which is, um, uh, what is it? I forget what exactly what it's called, but it's, um, basically using your authority. So, so believe me because I'm an authority figure and I say it's true. So I'm a scientist and because I'm a scientist, what I say is true. And that's actually a logical fallacy. The, the color, the color of authority. Yeah. So it's something like that. So they use those two in combination. Yeah. Um, but a, one of my found says that it was cloudy that night. So that couldn't have it couldn't have been what they described because they wouldn't be able to see anything. Cause there's a lot of cloud cover. But if you look at the actual weather data, which is available online still to this day, the data shows that it was clear and it wasn't cloudy, but nobody bothers to check on this stuff. Everybody just says, Oh, well this person is, you know, they're, they're like a scientist. So they must know what they're talking about, but no, they're usually just making, st- they're either just flat out lying distorting facts or something, you know, they're so desperate Mm. to believe that this stuff is not true. It's almost like they're afraid of aliens. It's, it's really weird. I don't understand why they do this stuff, but they refuse to take 
the evidence at face value. They twist it, they lie about it, but they never discuss the actual evidence. Mm-hmm. So that I think that's pretty much all we have to say about the case. Uh, do you have any final thoughts on this one, Agent ETA? Yeah. Um, when it comes to the the case as a whole, and if you were to ask me if I believe the case or the story, I'm I'm a little split on it because when when I hear the sessions, the recordings of the hypnosis sessions, it seems like they're both being pretty genuine, especially Barney, because he uh, expresses genuine emotion, as far as I can tell, unless he's just a very good actor. But he doesn't have any uh, acting credits to his name, as far as I'm con- as as far as I know of, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, there are definitely some things that that make me kind of stop and question and, and, and raise concern. But as a whole, it seems like there's there's enough of a totality of evidence and story to me to to say that something definitely happened. Mm-hmm. They definitely experienced something that they, they at one point or another, they definitely had trouble explaining what exactly happened to them. Um, I, I believe at least up until the hypnosis state of the story, mm-hmm. uh, it seems like they're being very genuine. And once you get like a, an international notoriety to any kind of a story like that, that's kind of when things start to get a little muddied up. You know what I mean? Cause you start getting yeah. more and more people involved with a story. And then you also get some misinformation um, presented as well, you know, well, and, and there's some of that going on as well with this story. I think we touched on it earlier too, but I'd like to just reiterate the fact that they did not seek attention. They did not go out to the newspapers or whatever. I mean, they didn't get attention yeah. for this case for years after the sighting. And, and that is important. Yeah. I mean, if, if this was a hoax and they were trying to get attention, they would have done it right away. You don't do something like this and then wait five years or whatever, and then call the newspapers. That's, it's just ridiculous. That's Mm -hmm. not what people do. And and if Mm -hmm. something happened that long ago, it's not going to, nobody's going to care anyways. Yeah. Yeah. So to re to reiterate my, my position on it, I would say that I'm pretty much right in the middle, but I lean a little bit towards believing their story. Yeah. But how about you? How do you feel about the situation? Yeah, I think, and you can, they actually have TV interviews and stuff too. At the very least, it seems like they believe their story, whether or not you believe what actually happened did happen. They believe it happened. Mm -hmm. And that alone doesn't prove anything. It's really easy to say that they're delusional or they're mistaken, this or that, but they do seem genuine. And I think that's an, that's an important thing to consider. Um, Another thing to consider is that what they're describing is an experience that's so far outside of our normal day-to-day experiences that even if it was 100% true, even if it happened to you, it would be hard to wrap your head around. It would be really hard to really reconcile that type of an experience with normal reality. So this is Mm -hmm. basically the problem I have is that this this experience is, even though this case has really good evidence and it seems believable, it's hard for me to believe it because it's just, it's hard for me to put myself in the place of these people. I've never experienced anything even remotely like this. And I wonder if mm. that's something that keeps a lot of people from taking this stuff seriously. If they haven't experienced something like this themselves then it becomes very, very difficult to believe it, no matter how good the evidence is. Yeah. 
it's yeah. it's basically not possible for you to believe it if that if that makes any sense yeah well absolutely you know i mean just the 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 whole story itself, especially the time period in which the story takes place is so sensational that, I mean, it's, it's just hard. It's very hard for the average individual to kind of take a grasp of this type of a story and, and come at it from a, a reasonable perspective. You know what I mean? Because th right. there's a lot of preconceived notions that you're going to have coming into a, a case like this. You yeah. know what I mean? Just because if, if, if anything, just pop culture and, and movies and stuff like that, that you've watched uh, throughout your life are going to uh, influence you. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I guess, um, I think that the story could be genuine and it could be real. And it's really hard for me to basically to understand what happened to them. And, but I guess to, to conclude, I think this is a really excellent case and it's definitely worthy of consideration for anybody remotely interested in the topic should dig a little mm -hmm. deeper into this one. And if you, while you're digging, if you run across one of these skeptics making some of these claims, pay close attention to what they're saying. And at the very least, there's something weird happened to these people. And I think there's a good chance that what they're saying happened really did happen. I agree. Well, at least uh, I hope at the very least that this sparks some interest in people and they look into it and, and try to come up with their own conclusion on the subject. All right, Agent ETA, you want to you wanna bring us out? So I hope that all of you enjoyed this episode. I hope it sparked some interest uh, within your dome piece. And I also hope that you guys follow us on Twitter at AlienCon. I'm sorry. I also <laughs> hope that you guys follow us on Twitter at AlienConPod. Yeah, let us let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. Um, one th uh, uh, now that it, you you just reminded me, I wanted to say um, one thing is I really like hearing personal stories from people who have never been on the news, they've never been in the newspapers. But there's a lot of personal anecdotes from people out there. I would love to hear what you have to say. You could even come on the show, or if you want to type something out for us to read your story on the show. And uh, it could be completely anonymous mm -hmm. or whatever, but I would love to hear if anybody has their own personal stories, just hit us up on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time for the 1956 Bentwater sighting.